So as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we've come to the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is probably the sequence of words that have been spoken, have been repeated, more than any other words in human history. But it's really important to understand what the Lord's Prayer is. This is not a mantra that you're just meant to mindlessly repeat and not think about what you're saying. This is actually a framework. It's a framework that you're meant to embody. You're meant to build your life on it. It's to give your mind a structure for how to think about the world and how to think about your life and how to think about the church and Christ's kingdom and what you need. And so it's an organizing concept that gives structure to all of your thinking. So we're going to pick it up, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not, bu- do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses." So again, it's really important to see this as a framework, and this framework provides for us both our commitments and our culture. The first three petitions are all about the commitments that are to mark Jesus' family, commitments to God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. We are to be committed to worship, to mission, to discipleship. These are our commitments. And that's a framework that every Christian and every church has to build its life and ministry upon. See, every church should be about this. This is one of the challenges in our world, because in 21st century America, we are fundamentally consumers. And so one of the dynamics of every aspect of life is you have to differentiate yourself from other entities. And so you see churches always wrestling and promoting their own vision and their own mission and their own this. But the reality is every church has to be about these three things. These are our core commitments. Commitments to worship, to mission, to discipleship. We don't get to decide or determine what our core commitments are going to be. Now, there is freedom and latitude to think how we best employ those things or do those things in our particular context. The best way we follow the Bible in worship and in mission and in discipleship in our specific area and place and location. But for the most part, we don't get to decide what we're going to do. It's kind of like if you want to open up a Chick-fil-A, but you decide we're going to open up a Chick-fil-A, but we're not going to do chicken. We're just going to do duck. And we'll call it a quack filet. We're not going to do chicken. You actually don't get to decide those things. And similarly at Christ Church, this gives us the framework that all Christians and all churches are to be about. And I've actually been thinking a lot about how powerful frameworks are to help us in organizing our thought and giving us structures and parameters for how to think about difficult things. Especially in a world of deep complexity, you need 
frameworks. You need first principles to help you. So for example, in our men's Bible study on Thursday morning, we were wrestling with how difficult it is to navigate the political, our political climate. So even things like, who are you going to vote for? So I've been thinking about what is the framework that's actually going to help me make my decision for who I'm going to vote for, how I should think about the political instability of our time and all of the political tension. So this is kind of a rabbit trail, but maybe it'll be helpful. But let me share with you my kind of political framework for helping me think through who I'm going to vote for for president. If it's helpful, great. Uh, if you don't find it helpful or find it offensive, you can email Julio at TrinityLakeNona.com. But the three things, so I think of things in categories of three, generally like to have them start with the same letter. So the three things that I'm weighing are personal character, policies, and then personnel. So you have to navigate and kind of weigh how much weight you put to each of those things. The person's just personal character. That matters in leadership. And then their policies and then their personnel. You think about for the president and the executive, uh, so whoever the president is, they will bring in something like 4,000 different personnel. And all three of those things are very significant and they have to be weighed as you think about who you're gonna vote for. And very rarely, I can only think of one time in my 20 years of voting life where there was a candidate that I was comfortable with or felt was in line with my personal convictions where I admired their character, I thought they were a person of character, I agreed with the policies, and I was for the personnel. Every other time, it's going to be a compromise. You are going to compromise on one of those things. And with every election, you have to weigh which one of those you're going to place more weight on. And it's perfectly reasonable and it's perfectly legitimate for Christians to place a different weight on a different one of those things. Per like personal character, that matters. That really matters, and we should take that very seriously. Policies, they matter. One of the things that frustrates me in our current political climate is that everyone gets demonized and nobody actually understands policies. Instead, we attack and demonize, and I would just love once to see a political debate between two candidates where they did not try and attack the other and say, so-and-so wants to kill your grandmother and eat your babies. But instead, they would say something like, both my esteemed opponent and myself believe and desire and are seeking the full flourishing for as many Americans as possible. They believe the path for full economic flourishing follows down this path. We believe the path for full economic flourishing follows down this path. Here's why we think this path is problematic. Here's why we think this path is the best path to bring about economic flourishing. I mean, that would be amazing. But the real difference is actually a difference in policies. And those policies matter. What you think about the policies about the sanctity of life, the economy, education, healthcare, they matter. They all have to be weighed in balance. And then the personnel. It really matters who they're going to appoint to different positions. All of those things matter. And what's the responsibility of 
Christians is to get clear in their conscience where they say, all right, this is the thing that I'm going to put more weight on and I'm going to allow to shape my decision. Because everybody has to compromise at one of these things. So for example, you can have a candidate where you really admire and esteem them and them as a person and you admire their personal character, but you can strongly disagree with their policies. Then you have to think, all right, which one is going to be more significant for me? Or you can have a candidate that you, you admire or you agree with the policies and absolutely abhor the personal character. You have to think which one is going to be more significant for me. But everybody is in a position of compromise. But what we need to do as Christians is to get clear on which of these things actually matter to us and then give grace to people who are going to place different weight on different things and not demonize them. So, for example, if you put your primary weight on the personal character of the candidate, that's great, good, good for you. That's a good thing to focus on. But then don't demonize someone who's going to put more weight on the actual policies. All of these things have to be held in. But everyone has to wrestle with these three things. And we need to have clear convictions about them, but then give people grace who come to a different location. I mean, the reality is we need Christians to inhabit both parties and indwell in both parties and in both parties push them into a more Christian direction, a direction of more moral character, more biblical policies. But that's kind of the framework that I'm wrestling with to think through some of these things. So actually, maybe if you are with people where you can discuss these things, Maybe take a moment and think, all right, of these three things, their character, their policies, their personnel, which do I think is the most important? If I had to rank them in number of importance, I would put this is one, this is two, this is three. And of those kind of policies, which do I need to learn more about? I mean, the problem is we just don't know very much. We don't know much about how the economy works, how healthcare actually works, how education works. So is there something you know you just need to learn more about? And then think for a moment, can you understand or sympathize with Christians who will actually place a greater weight on something else other than what you would? But all three matter. And that's a framework to thinking through those things. All right, let's get back onto, let's get off the rabbit trail and back onto the main trail of the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. Because what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a framework for making sense of all of life. And the first three petitions give us the framework of our commitments. This is what every church is to be about, worship, mission, discipleship. And then the second is getting the culture. This is what the culture is supposed to be about. So for the next couple of weeks, I want us to think through what is the culture that's created by a commitment to these things. And actually even thinking about culture, culture as a concept is one of the most difficult to understand, difficult to define. Um, so maybe uh, a different image is to think it through an environment or an atmosphere. That's part of the imagery of these sermon slides to help you think about, all right, think about culture almost like the environment or the atmosphere, because culture is just notoriously hard to define. So now the question we want to think about is what would it be like to live in an environment? 
in an atmosphere that's marked by the Lord's Prayer. These commitments or this culture has created a culture of generous hospitality and dependence, a culture, an environment, an atmosphere of continual forgiveness, and an atmosphere of endurance and fighting temptation. What type of atmosphere would that create? If you lived in the atmosphere of grace, what would that be like? Because the reality is all week long we swim in this sea of anxiety and we're battered by these cultural currents of self-aggrandizement and self-assertion and the winds of judgmentalism and negative scrutiny just beat us and the waves of criticism are coming up against us and the waves of guilt and the waves of self-justification and every day we have to navigate the demands of a very touchy world and a very active devil and our own sinful tendencies but the power of the gospel and the power of this prayer is that it can place you in a new atmosphere it can bring you into a new environment see the glory and the goal of the church is to help you walk into a new kind of community a new world a new atmosphere and when grace becomes the atmosphere you live in when grace becomes the air you breathe then everything in your life changes you're no longer focused on what's wrong with the world you're no longer fixated on everything that is wrong with the world, which is obvious. I mean, it's obvious. And then you're no longer focused or fixated on what's wrong with you. Because if we're honest, there's plenty. But when grace becomes the atmosphere we, we live in, the environment we live in, the atmosphere that we breathe, then our focus shifts from what's wrong with the world to what's right with Christ. And what's right with Christ is boundless. It's endless. And so what the Lord's Prayer is trying to do is create this grace-saturated culture, this grace-saturated atmosphere that's shaped by these petitions. So this morning we're going to spend a few minutes just thinking about that first petition of the Lord's Prayer. So let's think through the next petition in the Lord's Prayer, which is, Give us this day our daily bread. And so the type of atmosphere that this is going to create is the atmosphere of dependence, an atmosphere of generous dependence. So a couple things. Let's think through first the request for dependence. So give us this day our daily bread. And as we break down this prayer request, there's several implications I want us to think through. Let's think through this first question. Why does Jesus teach us to ask for bread? I mean, why do we have to ask for something so simple and so common? You have to ask. You know, in some ways, this is the first request because the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer are declarations. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. They're declarations. But then this is the first give us. Now the attention is shifting from God to us. Give us, forgive us, lead us. And the first thing is to ask for bread. So why does he want us to develop the posture of dependency? It's interesting. 
Kind of read through the Sermon on the Mount. Here's a reading challenge for the week. Read through and look at all the different things Jesus tells us to ask for. Prayer is one of the central themes. Ask. Seek. Knock. And there's just some things you'll only receive if you ask. And there's some things it's dangerous for God to give to you unless you ask. And really, if we're honest, especially for 21st century Americans, asking can be really hard. You know, one of the areas that I'm growing in grace is that I will ask for things if I go into a store and can't find it. Now, it used to be I would never ask, and my mindset was if the store is not laid out logically enough with clear enough signage where I can't find what I'm looking for, I'm not going to buy it from there anyway, and so I'm not going to ask. But, of course, after you've gone through all that it takes to, dra- to get four kids into that store, there's no way I'm not walking out with what I came in there for. So the first, I don't even, I don't even look for the signs. First thing I do is just walk up right to an employee and say, um, can you tell me where this, this, and this are? Because nobody's got time to walk around the store trying to find things. We want to get in and get out as quick as possible. And that's a mark of maturity, learning to ask. But the very first mark of this atmosphere is that we're dependent. And we learn to ask, not with a sense of entitlement or no sense of, I'm owed this. Because these things don't come by demanding, but they come by requesting. And so we enter in with the posture of submission. This is why this request follows, your will be done. We state up front, your will be done, and then we ask for bread. We have to ask. But notice it's daily. Why daily? Why does he want us to ask for this every day? You know, the daily bread is a reference back to the manna, where the bread would come each day from the hand of the Lord, and you could only gather what you needed for that day. And the key idea is that dependence is not just something that we need for the days where we don't have enough. Dependence is a posture for every single day. It's a humble reliance and a grateful trust. So it's daily. But then think about daily bread. Why ask for bread? The necessities of life. The thing we daily depend on. See, bread in this world, you know, we think about bread as just like carbs. It's the enemy. But in this world, bread is the most basic of your daily necessities. A deep dependence for the basics of life. You know, all throughout the, the Bible, bread is, is symbolic. Physical hunger is symbolic of a spiritual hunger. What Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. What you need, what, just, as, just as you need bread to feed your body, you need me to feed your soul. It's bread. But then notice the hour. It's hour. There's a strong social dimension in asking for bread. And do you realize one of the things when you're praying and Jesus commanded us to pray for our daily bread, you're praying for a just and a flourishing economy. Luther, in his catechism that he taught children to pray, he would teach them, when you're praying this, you're praying for a good economy. This is, quote, a good economy, no hoarding, no exploitation. This is prayer against the injustices where bread is taken from 
others. There's a profound social dimension in praying for our daily bread. But that hour is also a mark of genuine hospitality. Jesus is not going to provide you your bread for you alone. The whole point, the assumption is that this is our bread. We're eating and breaking bread together. It's, there's to be generosity and hospitality. And so the question is, what type of atmosphere, what type of environment is created if every day God's people pour the life-giving vitamins of that kind of prayer into the atmosphere? I mean, you know what happens to an environment if you pour toxins into it every single day. But what happens if you pour that kind of praying? Asking God to help make us a generous and dependent people. We're grateful and thankful for all of his mercies. That's the request for dependence. The next thing I want you to think about is the routine of dependence. And what Jesus commands is that we pray every day for this. Give us this day, today, our daily bread. The assumption is that this is what you're praying in the morning for that day's necessities. Daily prayer. He expects you to pray this, not just every day, but every single morning. And what this is pointing us towards is the biblical routine of morning and evening prayer. That's one of the basic realities that God has worked into the fabric of the universe that we can see from Genesis 1, at the very beginning of the rhythm of evening and morning, the first day, evening, morning, the second day. So in Genesis 1, verse 2, the condition of creation is that it's formless and it's void and there's darkness. And this is the condition not just of creation out there. This is the condition of all of our inner lives in here that we can slip to. We can slip to a place of formlessness and void and darkness. And every single day you Wake up and your emotions can be unstable, dashing up and down. Your thoughts can run riot, bouncing off your mind like a monkey bouncing off the walls. And then your appetites and desires can pull you this way and that way. But we need this rhythm, this routine. And what I wanted to do for this section is take us to Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, because those establish at the very beginning of the Psalter the needed rhythm of morning and evening prayer. But I think this is so important for this stage that we're in. Let me encourage you to go to the Daily Word podcast last Friday. Cynthia and I spent some time just kind of thinking through Psalm 4. And then next week we'll think through Psalm 5. But I'm actually going to put a pause on this point number two and return to it next week and break down and unpack Psalm 4 and 5 a little more because I think it's so important. One of the great lessons I've taken from this season is how significant and central the Psalms have to be for us to make it through life. And so next week, I want to look at Psalm 4 and 5 and think about this routine of dependence. But just to set it up, you know, you look at where David's life is in Psalm 4 and 5 as he sets this routine, this pattern um, and commitment to, to morning and evening prayer. You know, David is on the run from Absalom. His future is uncertain. His name is being slandered. His family is shattered. His life work is being threatened. His home is in jeopardy. His life is in danger. His entire life has been flipped, turned upside down. You know, other than those things, his life's pretty good. And then what does he do in Psalm 4 and 5? He commits to this routine of prayer of committing to evening and morning 
prayer. And what Jesus is pointing us to is just the basic reality of our morning prayer. It's a routine. But let's talk about that next week. So let's go to the third thing for this week, which is the results of the dependence. And you can really see this in Psalm 4. So actually, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip over to Psalm 4. And this will be a little preview of what we get to next week. But so David finds himself in this incredibly disruptive stage, the situation. It begins Psalm 4 verse 1 where he calls out to God and says, Answer me when I call to you. Give me relief. Be gracious to me. And then he goes on this journey from a place of tremendous pressure and pain and struggle to a place of peace. Look at verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. So he's gone on this journey from panic to peace. And along the way, there's a couple different stops. And this is so important. And, and what this does is it points us to the results of this faithful dependence on the Lord. And you can see it in, in Psalm 4, verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So he becomes joyful. His dependence on the Lord is going to produce for him a joy that's not dependent on any circumstances. And don't you want that? Don't you want access to a joy that no circumstance can shake or no situation can break? That's what the gospel gives. That's what dependence on him can bring, an unshakable, stable joy. But then look in verse 8, it brings him rest. It's restful. There's this inner calm, and no matter how chaotic things get out here, there still can be peace in here. And as we move into or continue into a just chaotic, tumultuous season, don't you want access to peace? Don't you want access to an inner calm that no matter how chaotic things are out there, you have peace in here? And that's what this dependence can bring. But then it also makes you watchful. I love in Psalm 5, verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. See, it becomes joyful, it's restful, but it's watchful. You become alert, you become eager, you become watchful. Who can I bless today? You become attentive where you're looking for His mercy. You're looking for His grace. You're looking for how He's going to be faithful to provide for you today. So now let's, let's wrap this up and let's think about a couple of questions. Let's think about for a moment, as a church, how can we create a culture, an atmosphere of generous dependence where we're dependent on the Holy Spirit? So the first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer lay for us our mission, our commitments. You're supposed to be about these things. Worship, mission, discipleship. And as we go forward trying to make disciples with this incredible commitment to honoring his name and expanding his kingdom and doing his will, what Jesus wants us to do is to pause and understand that can only be possible if we are utterly dependent on him and his Holy Spirit. See, Jesus teaches us that it's the Spirit in John 6 that gives life and the flesh is no help at all. And he doesn't mince words. You know, when Jesus tells us in John 15 that he's the vine, you are the branches, we are the branches apart from him, we can do nothing. He means that. 
And one of the greatest gifts He can give you is to take you through situations where you learn how true that is. So if this season has been very hard on you, and it's forced you to face your own finality and your own finitude in a ways you haven't before, then ask Him to help you to learn the lesson of your dependence. When He says, apart from me, you can do nothing, He means it. That's not hyperbole. So we want to live in an atmosphere where we are unashamedly dependent and reliant upon the Holy Spirit. And one of the primary places that the Holy Spirit will teach you dependence is through the wilderness. And so for many people, this has been a season of wilderness. But the goal, the lesson is to teach you dependence. And like Charles Spurgeon says, what humbles you can't hurt you. So if you're going through a season where you're being humbled, then learn the lesson. Anything that forces upon you your own dependence is good for you. You know There will be times in our life where we feel like everything is falling apart. And when we enter into those times, they will not be wasted if it makes us dependent upon Him. So we want to create an atmosphere where we're generously dependent. And I think that piece of generous, that hospitality piece, where we recognize that it's our bread, that our table is to be open, where to share meals with people, where we extend genuine hospitality. That's another key question. In fact, I think one of the most important questions for the church in general to wrestle with is how can we create a culture, an environment, an atmosphere of genuine hospitality? The Bible says that before we trusted Jesus, we were strangers to God, that we didn't know Him. Whereas Paul shifts it, actually, He didn't know us But the Bible also says that God takes us who were strangers and He brings us into His house and He brings us into His family. And God demonstrates His hospitality to strangers and then calls us to do the same. And so we want to become hospitable because of the hospitality that He's shown to us. And so we as Christians are called to open up our lives, open up our homes, open up our hearts to people, to the strangers, to those who are outcasts and those who are outside. And one of the great temptations of a season like this is to shut ourselves off, close up to people, close up our homes, close up our lives. Now, you have to be wise and you have to be and you have to follow the protocol that you think will bring safety, but we are called to be a hospitable people. So what does that actually look like in the age of COVID? Well, we don't know. But that's one of the joys that we need to be dependent on Him to figure it out. But what would it be like to live in an atmosphere of daily generous dependence? Daily joyful dependence. Like I said earlier, all week long we swim in the sea of anxiety. We're battered by these cultural currents of self-aggrandizement, self-assertion, and the winds of judgment and negative scrutiny and the waves of criticism wash over us in guilt and self-justification. And every day we have to navigate these demands. And again, this is the power of the gospel to place us in a new environment, in a new atmosphere. And the glory and the goal of the church is to create this new atmosphere where grace becomes the atmosphere that we live in. It becomes the air we breathe, and when that happens, everything changes. And we can become dependent. We become joyful. We become restful. You know, one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week when we gather in person is because we serve a God who's openly generous and invites us to His table. 
You know, the bread that he provides at his table is his broken body, where he says, this is my body broken for you. My body was broken so yours can be made whole. And oh, how we need the broken body to make us whole right now. And oh, how we long for the time where we can gather again to eat of that bread, to feast at that fellowship meal, and we should miss it. And so we want to ask him, Lord, help us in this time where, like David in Psalm 4, where he's on the run and he's in the wilderness and he's away from his people and his place. And and we have to ask to help make us appreciate and long for what we're missing, but make us aware of how utterly dependent we are on him. So let's take a few moments and pray and ask the Lord to make these things a reality in our life. First, let's ask God to give you the wisdom you need to navigate the current political instability. Ask him to help us to be both wise and gracious. And now let's ask God to help you to become generously dependent upon Him. And ask Him, in what areas does He want you to grow in your awareness of your dependence upon Him? And finally, let's ask God to help you to know what it will mean for you and for our church to extend genuine hospitality in the age of COVID-19.